Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Thursday. We're going to talk some USC Trojan football with a couple different people today. We got Shotgun Spratling, our buddy, our pal from uscfootball.com. We're also going to get some uh, a little bit of insight into uh, the West, uh, the Western Michigan Broncos. So we have Patrick uh, Nothaft. He's a, a, a writer. Uh, for MLive.com, which covers, uh, all the, a lot of the, it's a lot of papers in the Michigan area. Uh, and he's also from Kalamazoo. He's with the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo Gazette. And uh, we're going to talk with him a little bit later on the show about Western Michigan and what USC fans can expect. But we wanted to get Shotgun in and you maybe just saw him on our Facebook live thing a little bit ago, but he's back. He's still here. We just went to lunch and now we're back. Uh, so a lot, a lot of talking for us, Shotgun. How you doing? Well, I'm just excited that I got to see you actually do the open for once and see see the preparation that goes into the Hello Trojan fans. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm excited about that. You know, you know, it's game week. It's game week. It's finally here. I mean, this has been a longer training camp. You know, the extra week where they've elongated the the training camp period, so they don't have to have two a days. So you know, the first day of pads is always fun because you get to hit, there's hitting. You yes, know? and that's like one that's one of the few days where I miss football. I played in high school, so. You know, the first time that you're hitting someone, you know, I kind of like, oh, I want to, I want to, want to get out there and hit somebody again. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the first game, you know, you get the, I mean, even as a reporter, you still get a little bit of, you know, the, the anxiousness leading up to a game. You know, the same with the players. You know, we're excited to get out there too and, and, you know, be able to see some live action. And so I'm ready. I'm ready for a Saturday. Got a couple more days. So that means I got, you know, that many more minutes to try to fill in as much content as I can. You know, I've got <laughs> cues upon cues of stuff I want to write. So we're trying to get it all in before the first game starts. And, uh, so we've got podcasts. We've got Facebook live. We've got a little bit of everything this week. Tons, tons of stuff. We, we created a little, uh, game week hub. Um, that I got the idea from the Nebraska publisher on the scout slash 24 seven slash CBS, whatever network, whatever we are now. But, uh, yeah. So every day we're putting up a bunch of stories. You can kind of go through this gallery every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. We'll put up a bunch of stuff from today, but yeah, lots, lots of multimedia. We had, this is, I think our fourth podcast of the week. I had Harvey Hyde on Monday, Dan Weber on Tuesday. We did a premium one with Gerard yesterday. Now we got shotgun. And a special guest today, so a lot of podcasts. I promise not to go as long as Gerard. I mean, yes, uh, I don't ramble as much as Gerard. Close. I mean, we're we're in the similar vein. Uh, you know, we, we're doing the Facebook Live. That was an hour and a half Facebook Live we did. Yeah, we tried to do rapid fire, and I'm uh, <laughs> I'm like the old school like musket. Like it takes you know, it's not <laughs> yeah, rapid fire. It, it takes a minute to, to get the full full uh, explosion of the gun out to reload it. And uh, yeah, so if you haven't seen it, where it's up on uscfootball.com right now. So it's kind of like a podcast, but there's video. It, I wouldn't say it's compelling video. It's basically me and Keely and Shotgun just kind of sitting there chatting, and, and but a lot of live questions came in. Through our Facebook live links, like in the chat, you know, whatever they call it, the comment section. So a lot of comments came in. We tried to answer questions and I looked really good. Just yeah. Say. I thought you I looked, looked good really in the good. middle. Yeah. And he was in shotgun wasn't even sitting on a chair. I only have two chairs in my studio. He was sitting on a, uh, 
uh, step stool or whatever it is. So. I was just squatting the whole time, just you know, <laughs> old school catcher, you know, squatting the whole. I bet you Port Augusta could squat the whole time. It's like. <laughs> Poor Gus can do a lot of things I could not do. <laughs> All right. Well, we have so we have questions to get to. Um, we have a couple of voicemail questions, and then we're going to talk with uh, Patrick Nothaft uh, at the end of the show. And so, uh, good conversation with him about Western Michigan. Wanted to thank our sponsor for the podcast and Trader Joe's. Uh, they've been great to us over the past couple of months, and uh, you got to see it firsthand, Shotgun, when we were over at the the new USC Village. Uh, they they they. Treat us like kings over there at Trader Joe's. It was great. The The event was great. We got to meet a bunch of people. It wasn't too big of a crowd, so a lot of people got to you know say hello to Clay Helton when he stopped by. Yeah. And Keith Rivers and Khaled Holmes were there. I mean, it was really fun. USC Psycho, uh, if anybody's ever watches the games on TV, the guy that holds up the license plate, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, you know, he, he was there too. So a lot of people uh, you know, getting to reconnect with people um, that have seen us at different events and stuff. And just being in front of the Trader Joe's, there's so much traffic going through there. I mean, that place is going to make bank. Yeah. I mean, they're going to make so much money there. Um, I wish I could just invest in that one location or something. Um, you know, I went and spent some money afterwards. You know, you got to get the maple leaf cookies. So good. Probably yeah. my favorite, uh, desserty type thing right now, maple leaf cookies. So if anybody wants to bring me some of those, just feel free to. Probably wouldn't be too, too good for my waistline, but. You know, they're so good there. And, you know, we stopped in, got some, got some things. Uh, you know, they were giving out the bags and everybody wanted a bag. Yeah. I think they gave away 600 of these Trader Joe's USC bags. They were awesome. I had former major leaguer Ian Stewart like text me afterwards, like, Hey, dude, can I get one of those bags? Uh, I was like, All right. So actually the president of Trader Joe's, John said, sent me some bags to my house. So, I'm, so, uh, if you're listening out there, Ian, I'm going to send you one. So, um, yeah, so, cool. so thank you very much, Trader Joe's, for allowing us to come out and, you know, give us the opportunity to be at the new UV and kind of check it out. I, uh, I was hoping to get over there a little early so I could go, you know, exploring, but I was in the middle of writing a piece, so I didn't really get to explore yet, but I'll definitely be back just to, so I can check everything out over there. Yeah, it's great. So we were going to go to lunch after the event and, uh, Shotgun and Keely are inside Trader Joe's doing their shopping and stuff using their new bags. So we had to delay that a little bit, but this is great. So it's their 50th anniversary. Um, we're really happy that they've been a part of the podcast and hopefully we'll continue to, uh, be. And, uh, it's been a great relationship. The, the, the executives there, a lot of USC Trojans at Trader Joe's. So maybe that's a little part of, uh, what they're doing here. But, you know, we, we love it. We, you know, we love going there and, uh, didn't know that about them, but, you know, that maybe that makes people like, oh, am I going to go to Ralph's or Vaughn's or some other store today? Oh, I'll go to Trader Joe's. They got yeah. USC guys. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. So thanks again to, uh, Trader Joe's. And happy 50th anniversary this month, uh, August of 2017. Uh, okay. So I think we're going to jump into some questions, uh, shotgun and then, yeah, we'll just kind of go from there. We I feel like we've talked so much. Today. I've got some answers. I don't know if they're the right answers, but I got plenty of answers. I've talked, yeah, we've talked a lot today. Um, this is kind of game week. I've had friends text me, Hey, you want to do something? I'm like, no, I like, I don't have any time to do anything. Like my wife is kind of mad at me. Like I'm you know, doing stuff. I'm supposed to be doing things around the house and. My girlfriend is disappointed that I have not actually come to bed before she's gotten up <laughs> three of the last four nights. She's like, are you going to come in? Like, are you going to lay beside me? No, nah, I got, I got to ride tonight. She, she like, for some reason, like the last three nights, she has woken up almost on the dot at 3 a.m. She's like, are you coming to bed? I'm like, ah, probably not. Uh, to be determined. We'll see. Shotgun has a different schedule than most of us, but yes. Uh, I, I went to bed at four last night. That was early. Nice. The pre- a- previous three nights, I think it was like 5.30, 5 and 7, so, you know. <sighs> yeah, that's rough. Uh, all right, well, let's jump right into the questions. Question time. We'll do, we'll start off with a voicemail question. Uh, here you go. Hi, Parasol Podcast. Long-time listener. 
What I wanted to ask was, how was, does the no bye week affect USC? The only team I can think about that um, had a struggle with an early bye week last year was Stanford. They had a bye week in the second week. So I'm not sure if you people have elaborated how Stanford suffered three losses to Washington State, Washington, and um, Colorado. And because, you know, Christian McCaffrey is hurt, they had a bunch of injuries, so I'm just curious how that will affect USC because USC were basically going through the same thing with having no bye week. So, um, fight on, and hope you guys could possibly elaborate on that. Alright, so having no bye week could be a blessing in disguise, or it could be terrible. You know, it's the, could be the difference between how the season progresses. It could be great that they, it's not that they don't have a bye week, it's that the bye week is the last week of the season, which if you're not a bowl team or you're not going to the Pac-12 championship, then your season would effectively end a week early. So, But the opportunity, therefore, is with USC is if they are going to the Pac-12 championship, that gives you a week to lick your wounds and, and get prepared and heal up. That's the biggest thing with the bye week. Not that you uh, would dislike having an extra week to prepare for a tough opponent, I know, being from Georgia and watching the Georgia-Florida game every year, it seemed like almost every time Steve Spurrier would make sure that he had a bye week going into, somehow it worked out. They would always have a bye week going into the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Don't call it anything else. I'm tired of people trying to <laughs> PC it. That, that is what it's called. Um, so, And then Georgia would inevitably lose to Florida, and a lot of people would be upset. Like, how do they always get a bye week? It helps you not necessarily with the game planning. That would be great you, if you would love to have that. But as the season progresses, having that one extra week to game plan for a certain opponent, it helps you that week. doesn't really matter the rest. It's about healing up because you're going to get nicks. You're going to get banged up. Uh, we talked about it earlier on the Facebook Live. Is they're almost always in, as a significant injury to an offensive lineman. Yes. Um, so and there's always some some you know minor injuries, guys that are just bumped and bruised, especially by the end of the season. So and especially if you're like USC and you don't go too deep into the depth chart, uh, particularly on defense. Uh, you're going to have those bumps and bruises. You're going to have, like, Porter Gustin last year, you know, he had to have surgery on his hand or his wrist, uh, after the season. You know, you're going to have those type things that, have, you know, maybe that would happen. I don't know exactly what happened. Maybe it happened in week eight. So he's playing with it for four or five weeks before, you know, able to do anything with it. Um, so it helps with that portion. But with the way the schedule plays out now, and if you expect USC to succeed, and if they do succeed, it might actually be better for them to have that bye week going into the Pac-12 championship game uh, and then have an opportunity to heal up and be healthy against a Stanford or a Washington or a Washington State a second time that they play you know, Stanford or, or Washington State and the first time they play Washington, whereas those teams are coming off, they've been playing for six or seven weeks straight and they haven't had a chance to rest up. So it could be, it could be very good in that regard, or it could be bad because – you get a couple guys hurt right before a big game and you don't have a chance to heal up at all. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you never know when you're going to need a bye week. It could change for everybody. And if you look at Stanford last year, they just weren't very good at the beginning of the season. They beat, I mean, they beat Kansas State. It was like 26 13. You know, they beat USC, they beat UCLA, uh, in the Rose Bowl. And then so, and they had the bye week in between the two. So you're talking four weeks into the season. They weren't playing like their best. I mean, they obviously beat USC and beat UCLA, so that's good. But UCLA was a fairly terrible team, and USC wasn't playing well at the time. Um, I don't think they got USC at their best, and so that showing was like, okay, whatever. Then they got smoked by Washington and Washington State the next two weeks. I don't think not having a bye – I mean, there was injuries and stuff like that, but 
I, I when, if you put the bye week before Washington, do you think they – no, they probably still get smoked. Yeah. I don't think it matters that much. They actually started playing better at the end of the season. They won their last five or six games or whatever it was as far away from the bye week as possible. So it seems like the more they were playing in a row, they played better. So I, I don't think the bye week was all that big of a deal. If they put it in the middle of the season – they probably still get smoked by Washington and Washington State. And we talked about this, again, referring back to the Facebook Live, but we discussed uh, you know, uh, the potential of the bye week and how that happens. Uh, it, with the scheduling, how does USC not have a bye week? Everybody's kind of clamoring. Well, it's because USC plays Notre Dame every year, and it's because the Pac-12 went to a nine-game conference schedule. So USC has to play, and USC says, hey, no, we play Notre Dame. When we go to Notre Dame, we play them at this certain time of the year. When Notre Dame comes to us, it's the last game of the season. Well, if you make those restrictions, that that narrows when you can play the other games uh, a lot because you know Stanford has a similar thing with Notre Dame. They play Notre Dame every year, and then you want to play USC, UCLA. You want to play that. At the end. So there's a lot of stipulations in the schedule already because you have those rivalry games already built out. That the schedule maker and the matrix of where you can actually slot each team and where they can get their nine conference games. If they didn't have nine conference games, that'd be a big difference, maybe. right? So then you, that's why the SEC because they have eight. A lot of guys that, what, two weeks before the end of the season or the next to the last game, they're playing UAB or, yeah. you know, a team that's coming back, UAB, who's just now back to football again. Yeah. Um, or, you know, Louisiana Monroe or whatever it may be. And it's like, what, why is Alabama playing Louisiana Monroe in week 11 or something? Yeah. That doesn't make it, like, how did that even happen? And it's because of them having eight games, they can move, they move one conference game a little bit earlier in the season and they can shuffle things a little bit more. Uh, so it gives you a little bit more flexibility. So the Pac-12 schedule as a whole, and then also USC's, you know, alignments and rivalry games that they've already have set up had also played into that. Yeah. And and it's like uh, I think I said earlier, the Pac-12. I think it's happened to like three years in a row that someone's had this. It's like it's not something new. Yeah. Nobody was complaining. I think Arizona had it last year, and granted, it didn't matter because no one ever wanted to watch Arizona because they were terrible last year. But they had a similar thing, and that, and they haven't actually you know really hurt them because they had so many injuries. They never yeah. had a chance to heal up. I think it was them. I, I could be wrong. Maybe that was two years ago. I think it might have been two years ago. And then last year, I don't know if anyone didn't have a bye week last year, but it was like the like Washington State was like the second to last week of the season or something. It was something similar, you know. So USC does have a bye week. It's just the last week of the season. The very last one, yeah. Yeah, that's the SEC tomato, tomato can weekend where they all, everyone plays somebody awful. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Unless you're Florida playing Florida State or Georgia playing Georgia Tech, you know some of those those rivalry games, and that's part of why they do that too, is yeah. that so that teams can have their certain rivalry games at the end of the season or whatnot. So. Yeah, uh, I think everyone should play the same amount of uh, conference games. I, I think it'd be better to just play eight, and not play nine. I agree. Um, but there's there's this like socialist mentality in the Pac-12. They're like, no, we we got, Oregon State's got to make sure they got a trip to Los Angeles, so you know, so they got to we got to play more conference games and. I mean, I'll be fine with everybody playing nine too, but you know, the, the schools that are, they believe they're in the tougher conference, quote unquote, like the SEC thinks they are, um, then they're going to want to not play that extra opponent. Yeah. And you know, Alabama could say every year, like, Oh yeah, well, we played USC last year and we're playing, uh, Florida State this year. What about your other non-conference game? Cause that would just be a regular conference game if you had nine, you know, yeah. maybe it's, Maybe instead of USC, it's, you know, it's UCLA, you know, a little bit different caliber last season. Uh, but, you know, you're still playing another high level power five team versus after they play that one tough non-conference. And I think Nick Saban just does it so he can play the other three conference games <laughs> being nobodies. It's because if somebody calls out his non-conference schedule, like, well, who'd you play? Well, it's like, yeah, oh, we played this one game. 
Oklahoma yeah. last year plays Ohio State, and that ended up being a big difference into why Ohio State was able to get into the playoff is because they had that marquee win at the beginning of the season. Oklahoma goes on and plays really well. The key is if you're scheduling right now, this particular if you could alter your non-conference schedule right now, play a tough Big 12 team because they're not very tough. They struggled <laughs> a lot in the last couple of years out of conference, yes. and then you know they play very well. Their, their top end teams play very well during the season. And then non-conference like. Ah, USC's got that this year with Texas. Uh, we'll see. Get what you, what you asked for. We'll see how that goes. Um, Reggie in Seattle uh, has been great uh, with questions. He said he's concerned about the announced team captains. I thought the teams usually pick two guys from each uh, from the offense and two from the defense. USC has three captains from the defense this year. Or is there any particular method to how teams select captains? Now, having been on a collegiate team, uh, played baseball, so we had a certain way of selecting captains. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was, hey, put down two guys. Didn't matter. Baseball, you don't have offense, defense. I believe in high school, we had something similar, or maybe even the coaches just picked them. I can't remember. Uh, but it was like, okay, we need, write down three captains, and then we'll choose from there how many. Clay Helton said that they did, hey, we want your inputs. Give us two offensive guys and two defensive guys. And he said just the overwhelming numbers were for these three defensive guys. You know, I guess they just stood up above all of them. Maybe it, was like, maybe it ended up being like, all right, we have 100 votes for th- or 198 and 97 for three guys, and then the next closest guy is 43 or something. And then you're like, okay, we need those all three of those guys. We can't just say that one vote is going to change that. And then on offense, maybe Sam was just that far ahead of everybody else. That they, you know, there was just kind of a, a log jam for two, three, four, and all that. So they chose to go with one uh, offensive captain, Mr. Quarterback, Mr. 14. And then on defense, they chose these three guys. And I think they're all great choices. Yeah. And, and it's unique that it's a, it's a well-rounded group of four guys. Uh, I mean, you got the two gingers, uh, <laughs> one on each side of the ball, and, you know, they have kind of a, Opposite side of upbringing uh, from each other, one from NorCal, one from uh, Santa Clemente. And then Yuchina Nwosu has actually gone through some stuff at USC, left the program for a semester, came back. Uh, some people forget about that. And the, the trials, he's gone from being this three-star safety at Narbonne to suddenly being this outside linebacker that has, has grown into, I would say, a man uh, in his time at USC. And then Chris Hawkins starting as a corner, moving to safety, you know, doing the rotation thing last year. And, you know, he wanted to start, obviously, like every player, and, and you know, kind of being the odd man out a little bit with, with uh, Leon McQuay and Marvell Tell. So I think you got some differences there and guys that have, have gone through a little bit of trial uh, to get where they are, whether it be having a red shirt your freshman year as a quarterback and then being in a battle or go through an ACL injury and, and work your way up, you know, after being, you know, at the top level. Oh, I'm going to set this record for most tackles ever by a freshman in the season. Uh, so I, I think it's a – a good collection. I think USC has very good leadership this season. I think it's one of the better that I've seen in you know the five or six years that I've been covering the team over the last half day de- or the last almost decade now. Um, yeah, they have a good group, and even the guys that aren't the captains, you still have guys like Porter Gustin who leads by example, and you have some other guys in there that are that are quality guys and offense line. I mean, you look at that. You got Viane, you got uh, Toa, you, you have um, Chris Brown, guys that have been there for a while. So I, I think it's a unique group, and, and Nico as well. Didn't want to leave him out. but um, And maybe that's why they're on the offense, because you have those four guys, 
You have Deontay Burnett. You have maybe Daniel Amorta Bebe. Like, you know, who's the actual the next highest guy on that rung? They're all quality guys. Yeah. And I think that just kind of maybe they like the Heisman voting when you yeah. have two from a from the same area or same team. Like, ah, uh, they steal votes from each other. I think that may have happened. Yeah, the same thing with the Heisman finalists. It's not the same amount. Sometimes there's five because they're all very close, or sometimes there's a huge drop off after the third, so they only bring three. Uh, it's you know there's a vote, and then it just kind of depends from there. And I yeah, I think they're all good choices. So it's not like you have to have two offense and two defense. The last time they did like six, or when they did six, that was when uh, Josh Shaw was one of them, and they end up having to. Drop him. So I don't think they're going to do that many again. But this week you're going to have three captains for the uh, coin toss because Cam Smith's not going to be allowed to come out yes. of the locker room after they do their initial warm-ups. Once they go back in the locker room, he's not allowed out until the second half. So, and uh, sometimes they have like a walk-on come, like whoever's like the walk-on player of the week or and, whatever. That and sometimes be. you have captains of the team and sometimes you do the whole coin toss and it'll be different guys each week. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it just depends on the coaching staff. And some coaching staffs just choose the captains themselves. And sometimes that can cause a little animosity. And sometimes there's supposedly a vote and yes. it doesn't really matter. Like we, we saw that, I think it was during, I don't remember exactly here. I don't want to call out any coach, but I believe it was during Sark's time that there was supposed to be a vote, and it was like, really, that's who they picked? I don't think the players would have picked this person. I don't think that, that he's a guy that everyone kind of follows, but the coaches picked it because, you know, kind of an ego thing possibly. Um, so it, it just depends on the coaching staff, how they decide to do it. Every coaching staff does it a little bit differently. The most common way, which it seems to be, is what Clay did. Is you vote and you say, hey, give us this many guys, whether it be like he did with, hey, give us two offense, two defense, or if they just say, hey, give us three guys or whatever maybe. Yeah, you get crazy stuff like, you know, Max Brown was voted a captain. He's first year at Pittsburgh. I believe he was voted a captain. So he yeah. captain two years in a row. Yeah, he was captain at USC, but he wasn't starting. Troy Williams at Utah, he was voted a captain. Lost his starting job in fall camp. So some crazy stuff uh, with the captains. Curtis in Marino Valley, he said, hey, guys, glad you had the running backs coach on the show. He's talking about Dylan McCullough. Uh, we, uh, we get great insight on the team. He said he demands three yards after contract, uh, con- contact minimum in all caps. Uh, this is why Rojo gained 10 pounds of muscle. Carr changed his running style to a less upright position and Dominic Davis switched to wide out. This coaching style is very violent. We need to rotate the backs. What do you guys think? You know, I, I think uh, Coach McCullough likes to rotate already. You know, you've seen that in his past where he's had multiple runners that, that get significant carries. Uh, and, and any running back, I mean, the, the way the game has become now, you need multiple running backs. You, you just don't have the Earl Campbells, you know, the Herschel Walkers where you give them the ball. I think Herschel Walker had like 40 carries in games in, in college at, at Georgia. Um, so in, instead it's you're going to get 20 and maybe the next guy gets 10 or 15 or something like that. You get 25 and 15, something like that, depending on how much you want to run the ball. Um, so, and, and, you know, I don't think that the running back style and how much the coach, uh, you know, I don't think that makes it more or less violent. I mean, if you're a running back, you're getting hit every single play. Yeah. There are very few Inherent plays. violence. <laughs> very few plays that a running back does not get hit. One, you run by everybody and you score a touchdown. <laughs> Two, you run out of bounds, which means it has to be a wide sweep or something, uh, you know, or you dive to the ground. There, yeah. There's three options, and you know those don't happen very often. That's yeah. probably four percent of your you know hundred plays or whatever. And you get hit uh, by teammates when you score a touchdown a lot of times. So. Yeah. <laughs> Can I go on a quick rant here? Yeah, go ahead. Rant. The dumbest thing in all of sports. 
Or second dumbest thing. Wait, second okay. dumbest. Dumbest thing in all sports is dropping the football before you cross the goal line. Yes, very it makes dumb. no sense at all. Very it dumb. does not help your cheering, your uh, you know celebration, or whatever. It doesn't make sense. Second is slapping each other on the helmet. I never understood it when I played. I'm like, why are you hitting me in the head? I don't like, like, cause you like get when you get hit and people like and you score a touchdown, you, like people want to hit you harder and like you're like disoriented. It's like, why are you like? Like, I would put my hands up sometimes around my helmet. Like, don't hit me in the helmet. Like, you, they have shoulder pads. You, that's what you clap the shoulder pad. That's what it's for. I mean, I don't understand why you slap somebody in the helmet, and especially now with so much concern about the head injuries that it continues. Like, yes. if I was a football coach, it'd be my number one rule: don't, don't touch the these other helmets. Don't touch these other helmets. If somebody's helmet falls off, maybe you can pick it up then. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't want you touching anybody. It doesn't make any sense to me. All right. Well, that's it. That's the shotgun rant. I like that. It. So, but otherwise, I'm saying that, uh, you, you know, the running style is you're going to get hit anyway. So yeah. I don't think it changes with the violence, uh, of, of the position at all because you're sorry you're going to get hit regardless. We talked about this on Facebook live a little bit, but, um, you know, he definitely wants the three yards after contact. Uh, that's something he wants to see. And I, I mentioned this watch. So Western Michigan, uh, eight returning starters on defense, uh, really good secondary. They got an Adoree like guy back there. Uh, the linebackers are really fast, but they're like kind of undersized. So this might be a great showcase for if you, you know, some guy steps up into a hole and you see Ronald, you know, Rojo kind of barrel into him and maybe drag him for a little while or, or break away from the tackle. So this, there might be, this might be a good chance to, to break away and you'll know, get some big yards after contact because you have some smallish linebackers out there for Western Michigan. Now, one thing I will say is that a guy like Rojo and Clay Helton, I think his quote was he's running with more violence or that he, he ran violent during the uh, scrimmage. And he actually did because, you know, he helped separate Isaiah Polamau's shoulder uh, with a hit. So that <laughs> yeah. is actually a violent run. Now, the difference in McCullough style is he, he likes to say, I believe he said that he, liked, he wants them to run through the trash. The biggest deal there is not the violence of creating a hit or something is to keep your legs churning. Whenever that first contact is made, is to run through that arm tackle. Don't let an arm bring you down. Yeah. I think that's more of his emphasis rather than go seek out contact and hit somebody. I, th- I think it, I think it's more of a getting through and don't let something deter you uh, with one little bump of an arm tackle. Yeah, we've yeah. seen that before, too, so that'll be a, a welcome change if that ends up occurring. Let's go to Dave in Newport Beach. She said, not really a recruiting question, but it seems like Gerard or maybe Shotgun. Well, we have Shotgun here. Uh, maybe has to answer this question. Uh, we hear Coach Udeze, so he's talking about Kenichi Udeze, the defensive line coach, always talking about technique and how the young guys are learning their technique. On the defensive line, where the game is so physical, it's interesting to hear the importance of proper technique beyond physicality. Can you describe what some of these techniques are? What are the coaches uh, looking at? And what are they trying to teach? Uh, that's Dave in Newport Beach. Now, I think this is a question that you should re-ask to Gerard because I believe Gerard played defensive line. Is that correct? I think he did. Like, so I, the- I think he played defensive line. I was a wide receiver, so I'm, I'm still. I when I hit people, like I, I love crackback blocking, and I was on the kickoff coverage team. I love hitting people, but I was throwing my whole shoulder into somebody. Like I, I was not using any technique or anything for that because I, I was terrible at trying to tackle people. So I only, I only played football for one season, so. The trying to figure out how to tackle people after playing two yard touch in the yard for forever just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, so there's the difference in technique versus high school versus college. 
for a defensive lineman in, in high school, a lot of times a guy like Rasheem Green is just so physically dominant compared to the some of the guys he's going against. You know, I, I play with an offensive line, and, you know, I watch some of the games, and you see offensive linemen that are not even 200 pounds sometimes. Like I saw a guy, the game I just covered this past weekend, the offensive line, I think there was like two guys that looked like they were over 240 pounds. <laughs> like everybody was like 200 to two. 240, somewhere yeah. in there. And it's hard to look at the tape for a dominant, like, 280-pound yeah. guy going against guys like that. So a guy like Rasheem Green, who already had his muscles and was already built and stuff, and, and granted, he's, you know, he's taking his game to another level now, uh, and his physicality to another level as well. You know, if, if a 185-pound or a 220-pound offensive lineman is trying to block Porter Gustin coming around the edge in high school, like, it, it's... He's just going to either... He's going to be able to bull rush, and you see a lot of times with def- interior defense linemen in particular... Their bull rush is much far advanced than some of their other moves. They don't have another move sometimes because they're able to get by with just bull rushing and dominating guys. And you, you hear a lot of, um, some of the four and five star guys that are starting to learn. You know, they go to the camps and you go to the opening and you realize, oh, wait, I can't just get away with this one move or maybe I have a really good spin move and that's, you know, what I use a lot. They realize, okay, I've got to start developing more moves. And that's part of what, what is going on. With the defense line, and Udaze talk, talks about hand placement, yeah, so much. That's that's one of his biggest keys. And you say, well, what what does that matter with the defense line? They're just trying to run by a guy, but you're trying to keep the offense lineman's hands off of you. Because if an offense lineman is able to grab you, and the goal as an offense lineman is to grab with both of you, take your fingers up underneath the person's shoulder pads, right where the uh, ar- the armpits are. That's how I was taught to block as an as a wide receiver. Is like you take your arms, you basically you go up and you do like a bicep curl. And you try to pull the person in close to you, and you're you're holding them. I mean, it it should be a holding penalty every time, which is why they say, oh, you can call holding on you know however many plays. So ideally, if you block per, a person perfectly, you put your hands underneath their shoulder pads, you grab the inside of their shoulder pads, and hold on, and they, you can control where they go. You can throw them to the ground then, because you have full control of that person if you pick their shoulder pads up, because where your shoulder pads go, the rest of your body is going to go. <laughs> um, so. As a defense lineman, you know, they talk about the swats and the different things you do with your hands is to keep an offense lineman's hands off of you. And one of the biggest things that Leonard Williams was so great at is what they call the long arm. I think they call it long arm. I don't know a ton about defense line. Uh, you know, I know when something's doing really well, but I don't know the, the terminology, uh, all of it correctly. But I think they call it the long arm is where Leonard Williams' arms were so long is that he could hold out and basically stiff arm the offense lineman and put his arm on the offense lineman's chest and then the offense lineman's arms weren't long enough to be able to reach into Leonard Williams' chest area, into his torso area. And if you can't do that, then you can't control it. You can absolutely control a guy if you can stiff-arm them and hold their jersey and push them one way or the other. And then he would he would put a long arm out, and he'd hold it there. He'd wait to see where the back was going, and then throw the blocker out of the way and go make a tackle. So if you can do that with one arm... Even if the guy is able to get closer to you and, you know, the running back comes, you have a full arm and you're, and usually at least half of your chest free to try to make a tackle. So that's one of the things that they try to do. It's a lot about where you can put your hands on offense linemen to control them and how you can keep them from controlling you. So hand placement is a very big deal. And that's one of the big techniques that, that Kenichi has talked about. And several of the linemen have said that, that he's, uh, you know, been harping on them very hard. Yeah. You, they, you see, you hear the word technique like all the time. Um, that's just very common. So you kind of ask them, guys, like, what, are, what do you mean by technique? And, you know, there's a lot of the technical aspects. Like, if you're talking about scheme, it's where they're lining up and what, you know, which direction they're going and things like that. But the technique is when you're actually engaged with somebody, like Shotgun was saying, the, 
the hand placement, sometimes like your footwork and, and things like that. So that's, you know, it's kind of doing, do the little things right that they're yeah. teaching. And, and all the coaches like to say, oh, it's all about the technique. And it really is, but that can mean so many different things yeah. where, depending on which position and which coach you're talking to. Because one coach is going to be harping on the hand placement. Other coach may, may be harping on your, your feet before you start your, uh, you know, your pass rush or, you know, and it depends on, you know, so many different variables that go into it. What kind of defense you're running a one gap, two gap scheme. You know, there's a bunch of different things. Uh, but the technique is usually when they're talking about it, as Ryan said, is the little things. Yeah. The attention to the details. What are you doing to make yourself better each day? And what can you learn each day in those small things and get better at? Let's go to Don. He said, when USC plays a mock game or even during game week preparation, which coaches are responsible for putting the game plan together that uh, for that opposing team? Uh, if not necessarily the game plan, but the plays which they uh, feel will be run by the next opponent. I'll have to check out the village. Also, I believe that the village will be will leave a lasting impression on recruits. Uh, that's Don. He's talking about the USC Village, like we were talking about earlier. And Clay Helton, you know, when you guys interviewed him, I listened to it later, he said, yes, that's one of the things they're going to be taking around because, you know, high school students, they have to see things and just see where they're going to be and everything. They can't just imagine, oh, imagine this new thing we're going to do. Uh, we need to see it. Yeah. Um, but back to the question, um, when you have a mock game week, and this is similar to the captains, it depends on the coaching staff. You know, most coaching staffs, the, the common thread is that the offensive coordinators determine, I mean, the, the D coordinators determine you know, what plays are going to be run, what defense you're going to run, and how you need to attack a certain, uh, you know, a certain defense or offense. Now, who do they trust? Who does the offense coordinator trust? Or if it's uh, Lane Kiffin, he called all the offensive plays. He had a defense coordinator. They took care of that side. He took care of the offensive side. Um, and who goes through and determines all the plays? That's going to be your analysts, your Kerry Colberts, your interns as well. You know, they'll be the ones scouring through film. Uh, those are the guys that, you know, will tell you, all right, this is what they run most common. I mean, if you have a well-oiled machine, you have like Alabama, I don't know how many analysts they had. They're like former coaches. Yeah. So those are the guys that are like, okay, this is what they run. This is, you know, maybe this is how you attack. And then they pass that along. They do the legwork at the beginning. I would I would guess now I haven't played college football so I don't know the exact dynamic of the college football you know I would guess that the coordinators um, you know the they spend time looking at the game film Saturday maybe or uh, Saturday night if they have a chance afterwards Sunday maybe Monday and then they get the information from the other people that have been looking at the film for other teams uh, the upcoming opponent versus the last game. They look at the last game's film and see what they need to work on, and then they get all the updates about what they should be looking for, and then they go to work maybe on a Monday or, you know, it just depends on the coaching staff and how, you know, how long they stay in the office and, you know, how they kind of uh, prepare the team and different things like that. So I think it comes from the head coach down, yeah. but I think those are the people that are involved in that. Yeah. And I think the coordinators, it, it, at the end of the day, what you're, when you're running against a scout team, you're basically catering to the offensive and defensive coordinator. So if there's something they want, the looks they want to see, they're like, Hey, we want to make sure you run a lot of three wides, blah, 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 you know, whatever. So they'll, they'll I think they'll have kind of input there. But yeah, I think a lot of the support staff, they uh, do the actual, involved. the breakdowns of, Hey, yeah. this is what we've seen from this team. And then the players do a bunch of stuff too. I, I, one of the Annenberg groups, um, did a really cool feature on, Michael Hutchings and Chris Hawkins and them watching film and kind of watch film with them and see what they see and you know how they go about it. And they're talking to each other in the play like, oh, do you see this? Do you see? This? So if the players spend more time, then obviously, you know, they're going to have a leg up themselves. 
the coordinators put in the game plan it's in particular um, and then you, you kind of go from there. I mean, you, you get on the field, practice field, and you point out different things. Clancy Pendergrass told me, and this is the hard part of looking at a team like Western Michigan, 13-1 and last year, 13-0 and to start the season. Most of that coaching staff's gone. Yeah. So, all right, now how, what are they going to run the same thing? No, because you have a new head coach. He wants to put his own. And uh, we talked about earlier is you know, trying to, with Western Michigan, is going to be interesting about the tempo. How, how are they going to run tempo? Tim Lester, I believe, comes from Syracuse, where he ran a slower tempo, uh, whereas their offensive coordinator came from Indiana and was one of the quicker tempos. Who's going to win out in that? Is Tim Lester going to take control and say, hey, this is what I want to do? Or do they kind of do, does the offensive coordinator, he say, hey, you, you decide what we're going to do and, and go from there? Uh, so you, I think Clancy Pendergast told me they've looked at so, he's like, we've looked at so much film and we're probably not even going to see 80% of what we've looked at. <laughs> So they're, they'll see a little bit, and they've just looked at everything. To try, you don't want to be surprised by anything. That's the biggest thing, especially opening season, opening game, because you had the whole offseason. Yeah. And that's the big thing in a bowl game is they talk about, oh, if Nick Saban has this long to pre- prepare, he's this good, or, or Urban Meyer, or whatever coach it is. Because you don't want to go into a game and then be like, oh, man, where did this come Where'd from? We've never seen yeah. that. Well, we didn't look at this game tape to see it. Whereas when you only have a week, you have to, you know, you have to crunch in. You're like, okay, we'll look at the last three weeks of what they've done, or maybe we'll scan through for trick plays that they may run, different things like that. All right, let's go to Dominic in South Bend, Indiana. So he's a uh, Notre Dame territory. I recently watched a program on the Pac-12 Network where they went over the 12 greatest Trojans, ranked one through 12. One thing I realized watching this program was that no USC football player has worn. The number five since Reggie Bush. I'm curious to know if anyone on the podcast team knows why. Thanks and fight on. Um, Dominic, did you see anyone wearing like number 33 or 32 or number three or, or number 20 or number 11? If you win a Heisman Trophy, your number's retired <laughs> at USC. But the thing with Reggie is, hey, are they going to put it back into rotation yeah. because he didn't? And Adoree wanted to wear it. I mean, that was part of the recruiting pitch to Adori. You saw when he was being recruited, he they took him, or they, I guess they took the Heisman Trophy to him. Or, I can't remember exactly, but I remember seeing him like with a picture of him wearing a five jersey with the Heisman Trophy. Um, so Adori really liked Reggie growing up, uh, even though he wasn't from you know Southern California. That was one of the guys that that had caught his eye. So you know they still use that as recruiting, um, and it was like, hey, is Adori going to actually be able to wear it? Instead, he wore two. Uh, which is five flipped, if you noticed. I don't know if that, I think that's the reason why he wears. I kind of think so, yeah. Because in high in high school he wore twenty one, and now he's twenty five in the NFL. So Lindell White's number, also yeah. Reggie Bush's number in the, in the NFL, and also his number and, and Reggie Bush's, Bush's number. number. Yeah. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of that that goes into that. But the, the main reason is that they have retired those numbers, and they're so cautious with anything Reggie Bush oh, right now. That all's got to end. Like that just. Give him the Heisman back. This is so stupid. Like, let him be associated with the university again. It's not like he killed somebody or whatever. Like, this is not, no pun intended with anyone else at the Heisman that may have, may or may have not have done that. But the fact that the NCAA is like mandating completely disassociated with him. It's only they're, you know, trying to hurt USC for, I mean, but they still is a recruiting tool for USC. Recruits still talk about him to this day, which is absolutely crazy. But I, hopefully, Lince Juan kind of, you know, he's, been on the job for a year or two, figures this out and goes, let's fix this. And uh, that would be a, that would be great. And you know, there's Reggie's kind of his career's winding down in the NFL. I don't think he's on a roster right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but 
you know, maybe that becomes, maybe there's a year off of the NFL and then the second year, you know, he's got the grace period after his NFL career has ended. Then maybe that's when they bring him back. Maybe that's something. Yeah. Who knows? I think that'd be a good time to. Um, Reggie wrote in, said, comment today concerns the supposed USC mantra that the best man plays. Oh, this could, could be one of Reggie's rants here. Uh, but it appears to be anything but that. USC appears to favor the veteran players, even when it's obvious to most that some of the younger players have performed better and appear to be better. Uh, I get, ex- I get that experience matters, but wanting to honor the veterans. Oh, I'm sorry. I get that experience matters and wanting to honor the veterans, but. Why say that the best guys will play if you really mean the best veterans? I don't want to appear as if I disagree with playing the vets first. My issue is with the statement that the best players will play. Fight on. Reggie up in Seattle. All right. So <laughs> the thing is, who have you seen that's performed better? It's not just about making one play. I mean, a guy like Stephen Carr is going to pop. He's going to make this play. He's going to make, you know, some incredible. He made six guys miss on one play in a scrimmage. It was incredible. It was probably the best, I don't know, six, seven yard gain that I've seen in a long time. Um, is he going to be able to consistently do that? Is he going to be able to consistently block? Is he going to be able to catch the ball in the back? Well, does he does, does he know the playbook? Does he know which way to run on a, on a run? Is he going to take the handoff and run the wrong direction or try to go the wrong direction and the handoff is supposed to go the other way and it breaks a play. There's a lot of things that go into it besides making a highlight play. Now, are they the best player? They have the best potential. A lot of these five-star guys have got a lot of potential. We talked about Austin Jackson earlier on the Facebook Live. I think, you know, me and Ryan kind of argued about, you know, is he the next best lineman outside the starters? I think he will be. Is he right now? Probably not. You know, um, I think he will be by the maybe midseason. Yeah, um, I would. I think he probably will be too. I just don't think he is right now. Yeah, we were arguing over whether you know the potential is if someone were to be injured, and as I said earlier, the, there's always an injury on the offense line. Unfortunately, uh, it seems to be every year you lose a significant injury on the offense line. It has happened several years in a row for USC. If per se, you know, it's Vianne Tomavaya. Uh, if he goes down, then do you shift to a Lobandon inside? Or so the question becomes, is Austin Jackson the next best lineman? So that he moves up and he takes that spot. Do they want to do that with Toa Lobandon? Or is Jordan Austin better than him right now? So that's who they play at right guard instead. Because of Toa Lobandon's flexibility, you can move him around and then it gives you the option of instead of playing, okay, well, who's the backup to, uh, to Nico Fala if he gets hurt? Well, on the depth chart is Cole Smith. Cole Smith's not coming in the game uh, as the the second center. Right. You're going to move someone else instead. So more with USC, they determine, all right, we have to start in five, and then if someone gets injured, we go to our sixth guy, our sixth best lineman. So because of Toa's versatility, you can do that. If you need to, you can move him inside. Or if you determine that Jordan Austin's better, you leave him there, and Jordan Austin comes in and plays that guard position. Or if it's Andrew Voorhees who can do that. Uh, if right tackle goes down. Do you put Austin Jackson in there, or is Clayton Clayton Johnson better? That's what it comes down to. Is that sixth person uh, who is the best lineman in that second group, not who is the backup in, at that position? Um, so, you know, I think Austin Jackson has the opportunity to become, you know, definitely the best, the uh, number six. But I don't think he is right now. Yeah. You know, it's about potential. With five star guys, they're ranked five star because, and I believe. I, Ryan would know this better than I, but I believe the the actual recruiting stars are based on 
the potential of a guy to get to the NFL and make an impact or the potential of him, what he can do in college. Not, is this guy going to play this year? Well, there's some two-star guys that are going to play. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean that they're, they're, you're ranked on your potential to have an impact. And those guys, you know, the guys like Tyler Vaughn's. Ryan's very big on Tyler Vaughn's, and we think he's going to have a big year potentially. But does he know the playbook as well as Jalen Green and Stephen Mitchell? One of the issues with the with the offense so far and some of the scrimmages we've seen is that Sam Darnold throws it one way, a receiver runs the other way. Right. <laughs> the difference is that hasn't happened with Stephen Mitchell. He's throwing it, and Stephen Mitchell's there. With Jalen Green, apparently that's the same thing. You know, those veterans, they know where they're supposed to be, and Sam has that rapport with them to when they make a certain move, they twitch their shoulders a little bit. That's when he's throwing the ball. So if they twitch their shoulders to do a fake and they run one way, he throws the ball and it's an interception and possibly a pick six because there's nobody there to even make a tackle. Yeah. So that's, that's a big issue with receivers. So everybody's talking about, oh, Joseph Lewis and Randall Grimes have been making these great plays, but do they know the exact uh, route? And there's a lot of concepts in their offenses. There's not just, hey, you're running a seven-yard in. It's, hey, you run a seven-yard in if this guy's here, or you run you know, a post if this guy's here. There's concepts versus actual plays. Uh, for some of some of the calls that they make, so Sam Darnold has to have that rapport with the guys to know exactly where they're going to be, and he because he's such an anticipatory thrower, and I think that's what makes him so special yes. is that he can throw a, a a dime to a place where a guy's not nowhere any close. The the most famous play of the year, the Deontay Burnett touchdown that he threw, and that was a broken route. Yeah. Deontay <laughs> said he saw a hole, and and Sam Darnold threw it. Uh, he was not supposed to run that play. He said later, he's like, I should have thrown it to Juju. He was wide open in the flat. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's such, it's one of my biggest annoyance that people are like, oh, th- that guy shouldn't play just because he's a veteran. Well, there's other things that go into just how good you could potentially be. Hey, do I think some of these freshmen have uh, better career paths and, and trajectories and better NFL potential than some of the other guys? Sure. Do I think that Brandon Peely should be playing right now in front of Josh Fatu? No. I think Brandon Peely is an absolute beast, and he's a freak uh, at 340 pounds the way he gets by, and I think he's going to pop this season. But I think there's also times where he's going to disappear. Yeah. So if he were to get consistent playing time, I think that's how it would happen. And Josh Fatu did that last year, and that's something where a guy's first year in the system, first year from junior college, he doesn't make as many plays. He doesn't, you know, he's not as consistent. You want consistency out of it. You don't want to. Now maybe you throw in, and what you do is you throw in a Dory for that player. You throw in, you know name Jack Jones or whoever it is on the offense, and you want them to, to potentially have that pop. You throw them in for one play to see if they hit that home run. If they don't hit it, then okay, we'll go back to whatever else we were normally working with. And that's why Jalen Green would get in last year to throw a pass or to, to do, a, uh, you know, do a little wrinkle uh, two years ago versus Darius Rogers always in the game. Darius Rogers didn't blow him by anybody. Darius Rogers had one of the worst 40 times uh, for a re- receiver uh, in a while. Actually, he didn't run the 40 because he knew it was going to be bad at the combine. And I love Darius, and Darius will catch anything that's near him, uh, but you knew where Darius was going to be, and if you threw it up, you knew Darius was going to come down with it instead of the defender, Where, but you knew exact, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was a veteran in the system, and Sam knew had a great uh, you know sense of where he was going to be, and he could just throw it up sometimes. And that's something we have to watch this season, uh, completely different, turn, turn left on the road here. Uh, but that's something to look at this season with Sam Darnold. He threw a lot of 50-50 balls last year. Yes. So if he's not on page with some of those guys, those are interceptions versus you know big conversions and stuff. Uh, so if some of those 50-50 go the wrong way, you might see his interception numbers go up a little bit, especially at the beginning of the season if he doesn't get on the same page with some of these receivers. So I think that's the main reason. And I, I know this question was general, but I know it's directed at the wide receivers. Um, 
So that's one of the main reasons that Stephen Mitchell and Jalen Green are in there right now. All right. Uh, we got one last one for you, Shotgun. And then we'll uh, take a little break and then talk uh, talk some Western Michigan. But here is our last question. It's a voicemail question. Hey, how's it going, Ryan? This is Andrew. This is uh, for Mr. Dan Weber, only because I know Mr. Dan Weber is the only one who is just as ecstatic about the situation at the Coliseum. I saw a post on Instagram that the Texas game is almost sold out. And under the caption, they said only about a thousand tickets left. The first thing I thought about is what Dan has said over the past couple shows when this has got brought up, that when the renovations do come to the Coliseum, a game this magnitude and with this many people going would not happen. I think it's about 78,000, so you're talking 12,000 less people would be able to go to this game if this game was in a couple years from now. Can somebody bring this up to anybody in the administration at USC, the football department, athletic department? I think that when you have a game like this, that should be enough to make you realize, okay, is this not going to go well? Because you might not ever be able to have a game that's going to get sold out like this ever again if these renovations do come to the Coliseum. Thanks for all you guys do. Fight on. So, you know, when you, when you, you're not Dan Weber, by the way, so far, I forgot to play this one for uh, Dan Weber's show there. So we thought we'd play it here. So I apologize for that. I'm sorry. I can't be Dan Weber. No, he's very much more passionate about this and he's correct on almost all regards in regards to this Coliseum idea. It's terrible. Um, take it out. My main issue with the whole uh, stadium renovation is taking out the primary seats they're taking out to yes. put the, the spaceship in, in the middle of the field. <laughs> um, the difference is they're still going to sell out those games, the big market games. It's just going to be less people there. Do they care about that? Do they care about the atmosphere? Uh, the seats they're losing? You know, How much money are those seats versus how much is that suite? That's the difference. That's why they're bringing it in. That's, that's why they're doing it. way more expensive. Exactly. Yeah. And the new stadium that the Chargers and the Rams are going to be in, there's different suite levels came out this week at the LA Times. Uh, what, the highest level is a million dollars a year. Million dollars. You get your suite and you can have it for every event. A million dollars. That's crazy to me. <laughs> that's, I will never have a million dollars in my life. I won't make in my career. I don't, yeah, I don't think I'll ever make a million dollars total. Um, so someone's spending that a year for the suites. Now they're doing different things. They're doing like you can get four people, a four person suite, and different things like that. So there's different tiers. That's what the the new uh, Coliseum design is is aimed at. Get the high dollar people in there. Yeah. It's about the money. It's pre- I mean plain and simple. You know you can go to the to the uh, higher ups at USC and complain about like ah oh, you're taking out these seats. The fans are going to be upset. Eh, are the fans with the money going to be upset? That- I mean, the classic comment, it's about, it's not about the, you know, what is it? It's not about the $100 donors. It's about the $1,000 donors, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like the $100. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, that when it's become college football has become such a big business that it's going to be the same. You see it a lot of places. Uh, you know, if you don't have equity in the team, as in the Green Bay Packers, where all fans have equity, uh, then, it's going to be about what can provide the most money. It doesn't, the atmosphere doesn't matter. There's so many people watching the game on TV and so many people watching their phones or watching something else at the game sometimes. 
that you know when they want fans to be engaged, they've tried different stadiums have tried different uh, techniques. You know, putting you know iPads or something there at some of the better seats so that you can see replays and something because that's something you don't get at the game. That's one of the uh, for me watching a game. I, I love being able to see the replay. Uh, and I hate when they don't show a replay on the board on, oh, yeah. on a controversial play or a play you're like, oh, what happened there? Because uh, sometimes I'm, you know, especially when I'm on the field and I'm shooting photos, I'm zoomed in, you know, I, what I call through the lens, uh, focused on the ball carrier. And I hear, ooh, and I'm like, well, what was that? Oh, that's Juju coming back to throw a ridiculous crackback block. But you can't see it. On the yeah. Utah State. So I'm like, what happened? What happened? And there's two players down. Juju was down. The Utah State guy was down. I was like, what? Somebody took, and they took like, it felt like three minutes to show a replay, and then they finally showed it, and then everybody like you know ooed again. Um, but you know sometimes that's a there's a bunch of technical stuff there with how quickly they can do it. Um, but you know that's the one of the biggest difference with the seating is you know can you see that replay or do you just want to watch at home so you can you know zoom in? Uh, in my opinion, football is the worst sport to watch in person. The, huh. the to watch the actual game. Now the atmosphere can be incredible, amazing. You know when you're at Neyland Stadium, uh, you know one of the places I've been at, at Tennessee. I was on the very top row for a Georgia Tennessee game. It was so amazing. I'm all in red w- watching Georgia to hear how quietly a hundred thousand people can can just yeah. shut up <laughs> when you when you lose forty one fourteen. Nobody wants to say too much, huh? Uh, so it, the atmosphere is am- amazing. Watching the actual play, like somebody got hurt, and I was like, "What's he doing? Get up!" And then I watched the replay later. I was like, "Oh my god, he he might he might be like seriously injured." Uh, but at the stadium, you don't know. You're like, uh, what? I don't know what's going on. Somebody, somebody explain what's going on. You need the like the in, uh, in stadium, you know, radio experience or anything to kind of get a, a second, you know, opinion on things. Uh, whereas hockey's the exact opposite. Hockey's terrible to watch on TV. It's awesome, awesome to watch in person. Yeah. Football's awesome to watch on TV. Terrible to watch in person. Just from the game. Remember, just from the game, not right. the atmosphere. I love the atmosphere at any sporting event where there's people. World Cup, I re- highly recommend anybody go to work. I don't care if you like soccer or not. Just go. Yeah. The experience is amazing. Uh, so, you know, that's the thing. They don't care about They want, they want the money. It's become big business. Yes. That's, that's what matters. Can you, did the greenbacks come? Yeah. And they do with this. I mean, they make, they raise a lot of money for the Coliseum renovation for this. Um, you know, yeah, Dan's certainly very passionate about this. Uh, I agree with Dan's point on getting it below 80,000 is not cool. Like I understand there's reasons they want to consolidate a little bit and get some, take some seats away. I'm totally fine with that. Like some people say, no, no, don't lose any seats. I don't mind losing some. I think they're losing quite a bit and there might be even a little bit more because of the, the angles when they put that spaceship building in there. There's going to be some, a whole bunch of seats and, and Dan walked it off and he thinks there's going to be significant number of seats that you're going to have not be able to see the end zone and stuff. So maybe you have to watch the new, uh, you know, big, big screens over there and stuff. I, I, I def, definitely don't like a building being placed. I think you could have put suites around the top. They got the idea from Texas A&M to make it as close to the field as possible. And you just don't even know who makes these decisions, but somebody like two years ago, like makes this decision and then it's like set in stone. And no matter how many people along the way, like, I don't think we should do this. It's like, it's already rolling and it's already going. So it's, uh, you know, I think Dan tried to fight it as much as we could. We talked about it a lot, but then all the feedback we got was like, dude, doesn't matter. Like they're just feedback they're from doing, the school. Yeah. From like people that, or at least around, like no one knows who made the actual decision <laughs> and people, you know, Lynn Swan's like, well, this was done before my time. Like it's like someone made some choice and it just started the ball rolling and nothing you could do could stop it. There's a lot of people that don't want to touch it. 
saying, oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't make that decision. That wasn't me. No, don't don't blame here. No one wants to take credit for, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. This is my idea. Yes. I did it. You don't see that for some reason. No one's, like, claiming, like, this is my, you know. Now, if the spaceship works and people love it for some reason, then I'm sure people will be Suddenly coming Suddenly somebody of, comes out of the world. Oh, yeah, that was my idea. Yeah, that. I've been doing this. I've got a lot of grief, but I told you this was going to work. Like, <laughs> well, we tried to find it. Like, we can't even find out who made these decisions. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to, everyone's going to get replaced, you know, displaced twice. Uh, Rams and USC, which is cra- like Makes all of no 2018, sense. everyone's moved. Then in 2019, everyone's moved again. So, uh, kind of nuts, but and, whatever. And we've seen on the, the peristyle, you know, a lot of people saying, you know what? I, I don't think I've been season ticket horror for yo many years, but I don't think that I can do this anymore. You yeah. know, it's a ton of, there, the, there's the expense that they're adding to it, you know, with the potential of the PSLs. Uh, and you know, it just, I don't, I've been in this seat so long. This is the seat that I have grown up. This is the seat I'll pay for. Yeah. Well, you're going to move me over there and like, ah, never mind. I, this is the seat that I, you know, I did whatever. This is where I ate my first hot dog or whatever. I'm from, Boston. I don't know, somewhere where they don't have hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my train. Where do they not have hot dogs? Yeah. The, I'm from and, and we haven't seen, so here's the big thing for me. When this, man, I can't believe we're going on a uh, Coliseum rant, but when it comes out and you're sitting, in section like 10 or something, which is like pretty good. Like I think probably like around the 20 yard line or something. And do you get moved all the way to the end zone? Like beyond, I think you do. I think you have to get moved a lot. Um, it's, I think people are getting moved to, to way worse than what they were before and paying for more money. And I think that's where the outrage is going to be. Like people don't really know yet, like where they're going to move to. So, when that happens, and then by then, obviously, it's way, 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 way too late. They think it was too late when we were talking about it six months ago. By then, it's already done, you know, and it's just it's just kind of nuts. So, I think it's going to get worse, uh, unfortunately. And and their thought is, we'll just bring somebody else in. That's that's what they think. Oh, you're going to go? You've been here for fifty years? Oh, never. We'll bring somebody else in. Instead, yeah. you pay the money. Those are the fans that have been around a long time, and you just you feel for them because they're the ones getting screwed. So yeah, it's dumb. All right. Well, shotgun, great stuff. Uh, so I guess this is like our, we had talked for like two and a half hours today about USC football. So I could talk for a while. Yeah. Oh, you're a good talker there. Uh, all right. So that's shotgun spraddling. Follow him on Twitter at shotgun SPR. Uh, we'll be back in one minute and we're going to talk, uh, some Western Michigan with Patrick, uh, no theft. You are listening to the Peristyle podcast from Los Angeles, California. USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. All right, we're going to talk some Western Michigan Broncos football. We have Patrick Notaft, and he works for the Kalamazoo Gazette and also MLive.com. Patrick, thanks so much for uh, coming on and talking some Western Michigan football. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, So if you don't know, you can follow him on Twitter at Patrick underscore no taft so n-o-t-h-a-f-t and uh i know it's only your first year patrick covering the the team but 
I just want to get your impression. You know, the, the whole row the boat, PJ Fleck thing has obviously moved on to Minnesota, but it still seems like there's that blue collar kind of workman like mentality that was kind of created by PJ Fleck that seems to still be there with Tim Lester. Yeah, definitely. Um, Lester, I, I would say that Kalamazoo is very much a blue collar town and Lester, since he graduated from here in uh, 2000, uh, he definitely gets that and he's trying to, uh, instill that feel in his, uh, first year. And, um, yeah, I think that, uh, the players are totally buying in. Uh, there's a ton of excitement heading into the season. Um, a lot of it is because of the finish last year, but, um, a big part of it is also, uh, the fact that we start week one with USC and then week two against Michigan State. Um, so yeah, the, Excitement level um, has definitely carried over and is still really high in Kalamazoo. So Lester, for people who don't know, he actually played uh, for Western Michigan in the late 90s. He was the MAC Freshman of the Year. Um, he was all MAC quarterback for the Broncos. And, he, you know, he played from 1996 to 1999. Has that helped uh, as far as, you know, his um, just, you know, getting along with the team? They, they know that he actually played there before? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think, um, you know, the team is going, I think the team is going to embrace, um, you know, whoever they brought in, um, just because the athletic department, uh, wanted to find someone qualified to come in and lead the group. But, um, I think the, the fans more than anything have really, um, embraced Lester given that he was a four year varsity quarterback here, um, for Western Michigan. And, um, yeah, just did some really good things. Um, and I think a lot of uh, fans that kind of look back on that and remember that are happy to see him on the sideline again. And it's uh, obviously some big shoes to fill, uh, with PJ Fleck and not an easy, you know, opener, I guess you could say. I mean, obviously a, a historic season last year going 13 and one and given, you know, Wisconsin all they could take in the, in the cotton bowl. I, I mean, how is he kind of use the off season and opening with USC as kind of a motivating factor. What, what, what's he kind of said about this opening game? Yeah. So, um, Lester in his senior year, he actually opened with, uh, the university of Florida when they were ranked in the top five. Um, and he said that, that the week of prep heading in or the, you know, the, the off season of prep heading into that game was unlike any off season that he'd been through just because the, from the players to the coaches, everyone knew what was at stake in week one and, uh, you know, what they were up against. So he said, um, this year is pretty similar to that where everyone is just, um, trying to, you know, go a hundred percent in every single drill from, and even in between drills, you know, running to each station, um, everyone is just completely focused and they know that if they want to have a shot to hang with USC, uh, they need to be 100% ready, uh, for the, uh, I think it's a two fifteen start over on the yeah. West coast. Two fifteen. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, the intensity level has been really, really high, um, and it needs to be if, uh, you know, Western wants to have a good showing out there in California. Um, so obviously a great team last year, uh, losing some, some big, you know, big time players, you know, all time leading passer at, for the Broncos. Uh, Corey Davis was the fifth overall pick by the Titans. Um, you know, uh, all American offensive lineman. Uh, Keelan Adams, uh, who went to the seventh, the seventh round to the Steelers, a, a great defensive end. Uh, is it, is it going to be hard to replace some of those guys? I mean, some, some guys that just had, you know, historic numbers for Western Michigan that are no longer there. Yeah. Um, pretty much all those guys that you mentioned are going to be really tough to replace. Um, 
obviously Zach uh, Terrell, the quarterback, um, you know, he went from a four-year starter, um, and now the team is looking at uh, a quarterback who's never taken a collegiate snap. So there is expected to be some drop-off there. Um, how much, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. You can run through um, all the drills you want to and all the scrimmages you want to uh, throughout the, the summer and the fall, but there's really never an uh, equivalent to going out there and taking that first snap, especially against a team like USC. Um, so, you know, there, there's expected to be a little bit of a settling in period for uh, John Wasink, who is going to take over under center. Um, and to make matters a little bit more difficult, um, the team's three top receivers are all gone too. Uh, Corey Davis, one of those guys, um, but the other two uh, receivers behind him, uh, Michael Henry and Carrington Thompson, um, also uh, were capable uh, pass catchers. And now I believe uh, they bring back maybe um, a couple dozen catches and a couple hundred yards from their entire receiving core. Um, so the passing game is definitely a work in progress. Um, Coach Fleck has talked about how the receivers – um, I think the oldest one is like uh, in his third year in the program as a redshirt sophomore. Um, he's talked about how those guys have improved more than any other position group uh, throughout uh, spring ball and throughout fall camp. Um, but you know, it's still going to be it's still going to be tough to replace that uh, combination with Zach and uh, the receivers that we had out there uh, last year. Um, and then other places, Keon Adams was a great defensive end. Um, we have a couple pass rushers who will be able to do some things, but obviously, uh, you know, NFL draft picks don't, uh, show up on Western's roster too often. So he's going to be tough. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's some question marks, but, uh, still some talent, uh, left from last year's team coming back. That's for sure. So on the offensive side of the ball, you mentioned that, and it's funny, the release that was sent out from Western Michigan, you look at returning stat leaders. For receiver, it's Keyshawn Watson, and it says two catches, 24 yards, no touchdowns. That's the leading receiver returning. So I know it's a, I think that's a position where young guys can come in and just step in and play, but that's, that seems kind of wild that the leading receiver only has two career catches. Yeah. I, our tight end, um, had a few, had more than that, but I guess from the receiving, uh, from the wide receiver position specifically, uh, yeah, he is the top returner. And, um, yeah, that just kind of shows that, uh, you know, not only do they have to replace the quarterback, uh, but yeah, the receiver position is going to be, um, you know, a position where there's a lot of uncertainty heading into uh, week one. And, uh, you know, everyone I think is excited and maybe some people are even a little bit nervous to see how some of those inexperienced guys are able to step up in the Coliseum, which is, uh, you know, a place that's pretty unique to uh, Western uh, traveling to play a road game. Um, but if you want to look at the strengths coming back, I think it seems like the offensive line, even though, you know, uh, losing, uh, was it Taylor Moten from last year, but should be a really, you know, a strong group for this, for this unit. And then also, uh, obviously the running backs, I mean, three or four deep at the running back position, a lot of touchdowns returning. So it seems like the strength of this team is going to be up front and then being able to run the football. Yeah, definitely. Um, they bring back, the offensive line brings back three starters, uh, one of which is projected to be a pretty high NFL draft pick from Mel Kuyper at ESPN. Um, his name is, uh, Chukwoma Okorafor. And, um, he, Kuyper lists him as uh, a top five, uh, tackle coming out of, uh, this year's draft class. 
So, um, yeah, he is definitely the anchor at left tackle. Um, the center, John Kenoy, is a junior. Uh, he started his freshman, sophomore, and he'll be going on his third year uh, this fall. Um, he is uh, someone who's really familiar with uh, the personnel group, if not the offense, the new offense that they're installing. But uh, he's a guy who can you know, bring some uh, stability and continuity to uh, that offensive line group. Um, also a Remington uh, award watch list selection, and uh, another, he's also a selection to the uh, Outland Trophy. Um, so there's definitely some talent there on the line. Um, and as far as the backfield goes, I think that it matches up with um, you know some of the best Power 5 uh, backfields in the country. Um, the top rusher, Jarvion Franklin, had over 1,300 yards last year. Um, he's about six foot, uh, 235 pounds, and was clocked at a 4.48, uh, 40, uh, laser timed uh, during the offseason. So he's a guy who um, I think some NFL uh, scouts are looking at to come in and maybe be a, you know, a day two, if not day one, um, draft pick, uh, depending on how this season plays out, obviously. Um, but he definitely has the physical tools to uh, make things happen at the next level. Um, and then you look at uh, the guy behind him, Jamari Bogan. Uh, he's totally different type of player. He's about five foot seven, uh, 190 pounds. Um, he, uh, like Franklin, he also won the uh, Mac uh, Freshman of the Year award um, a year after Franklin did. And um, he's the type of runner who, uh, you know, runs with some power and that low center of gravity that just makes him tough to get a clean shot on. Um, and what he really does well is uh, plays behind his blockers. You know, he'll kind of uh, pick his way through the scrum and then. When he sees an opening, uh, just dart through, and it's really hard to, you know, keep him from getting a gain of like four or five yards, uh, just with the way he plays. Um, and then when you look at a third string running back, who I think the coaches are going to try to find different ways to get the ball into his hands this year, um, and that's uh, Levante Bellamy. He is probably the fastest player on the team. Uh, Lester said he clocked in at a laser time four point three eight forty. Um, and he's another guy who's a little bit on the smaller side, maybe like five foot nine or so. Um, but if you get the ball to him in the open field, maybe on an end around or, um, you know, a little bubble screen, um, he can definitely make things happen in the open field. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement around the backfield. And I think that has a lot of fans thinking that this year could be another special season, you know, if not, uh, a 13 and 0 regular season campaign. So, um, the offense that's coming in, uh, I believe the guy's coming in from Indiana and it was definitely more of a high, um, octane sort of offense where they're getting a lot of plays and a lot of plays in. Is it, what do you see happening? Is it going to be like a fast paced, but run kind of focused offense or were they trying to slow things down a little bit? How do you think this is going to play out when you have like the, the strength of this offense being the run game, but also wanting to go like the highest tempo? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people are uh, really interested to see how that plays out. Um, I think that for the USC game, it might be a little bit different. I don't think they're going to be in uh, too much of a hurry to speed the tempo up um, just because it's going to be their quarterback's first uh, varsity snaps. Um, and I don't think they want to get themselves into a situation where um, you know, they run uh, three running plays really fast and then have to punt um and if they, you know, if they keep on doing that, their defense is just going to get gassed, and uh, it's not going to be a good formula for keeping it close. So I think that um, they won't maybe try to run their full um, speed package uh, in the opener, but I think that as the season goes along and some of the players 
are a little bit more comfortable in the offense. Offense, um, I think that you could see them running, maybe not um, at the type of speed that uh, Indiana did last year, um, but uh, at one of the faster paces in the MAC. Um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how they want to attack USC if they think that uh, you know running the no huddle, getting up the line of scrimmage as fast as possible is uh, something that they're that they're planning to do or if they're maybe trying to uh, slow the clock down a little bit and rely on their uh, their running game to kind of churn out some yards and uh, maybe give their defense a little bit of a break. Yeah, that's kind of I was thinking too, but then you're like, well, it's a high pit, you know, high pit, you know, whatever, you know, super high paced offense. I'm just not sure you're going to see that, but that that's one of the reasons we're going to watch. We'll find out what, you know, what they end up doing. Um, defensively, uh, looks like it's a good group all around. I think eight or nine starters are returning. Uh, looks like a great second. I think the back seven, probably the strength, but what do you feel about the, uh, the, the, the Broncos defense? What, what do they do well? Uh, yeah, the secondary is definitely the strength. Um, they have a really good cornerback in Darius Phillips. Um, he's a senior who uh, just has a penchant for uh, you know breaking up passes, if not intercepting them. Um, he had four interceptions last year. Three of them he returned for touchdowns. Um, so when he gets the ball in his hands, he just makes things happen. I think all of his uh, pick sixes went for more than 70 yards last year. So um, he's definitely a guy who... Uh, you know, gets excited or it's, you know, it's exciting to watch him, uh, once he gets his hands on the ball. Um, and then, uh, they return their other starting cornerback. He's a little bit bigger of a guy, uh, Sam Beal. He stands about six foot one. Um, not quite the playmaker that, uh, Phillips is, but it's definitely someone who can, um, you know, hang with Mac receivers. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he matches up with some of those, uh, young wideouts at USC. Um, the safeties, uh, Justin Tranquil is back. Um, he, uh, he was really in his first extensive action last year, but he finished second on the team in tackles. Um, so he's a guy who, uh, you know, is able to uh, kind of stop the big play from happening, keep everything in front of him. Um, and, you know, you definitely want a guy like that when you're playing on the road against USC in week one. Um, so that pretty much rounds out the secondary. I would say that Phillips is definitely a guy to watch. Um, I'm sure he'll get uh, USC's number one receiver. Um and uh, as far as the linebackers go, they're really fast. Um, the speed is definitely a strength of this linebacking unit, um, but they're not they're not very big. I think uh, two of one of them is a converted safety, uh, Asante Brown. Uh, I think he stands about um, six foot one or six foot two hundred fifteen pounds or so. Um, and then uh, the other outside linebacker, Robert Spillane. Um, he had a great season last year. Um, he's about 6'2", 220. So it's, it'll be interesting to see if um, USC's uh, fullbacks, tight ends, even maybe some of their offensive linemen, you know, if they get their hands on those Western Michigan outside linebackers, um, that's not really a matchup that the Broncos uh, defensive coordinators want to see um, just because they don't really have the size to take on you know, bigger guys and shed those blocks and make some of those uh, tackles on the running backs. Um, so, you know, while it might be difficult to uh, find, you know, uh, matchups that they like over the middle of the field with uh, the speed and uh, the hands that these linebackers have for Western, um, I think that a team like USC is going to be able to run the ball at them. Yeah, it seems like that, that was kind of the Achilles heel last year is, uh, you know, giving up some big plays in the run game, but 
I think what was, you know, maybe masked that or helped that out a little bit is the, the turnover margin where I, I believe Western Michigan had the, you know, plus 18. It was like the number one turnover margin in the country. So maybe giving up some plays in the run game, but then make big plays in the secondary, be able to turn the ball over and, and get the ball back for the offense. Yeah, that was a huge uh, factor in their success last year. Um, they had uh, 15 interceptions, uh, which I think was uh, in the top 25 of the of college football. Um, and, um, yeah, just be, to be able to go plus 18, I'm not sure if that is a repeatable statistic. Um, turnovers are a pretty random thing, um, especially when you're losing a uh, defensive end like Keon Adams who can really make things happen as far as forcing fumbles or just making the quarterback uncomfortable and, uh, you know, making him throw early back there. Um, they do have some good cornerbacks who can get their hands on the ball and uh, pick it, but I just don't see that plus 18 number happening again. Um, you know, especially with a, a rookie quarterback, um, you know, he's, he's not going to have the same ability to hang on to the football or to make, uh, you know, the excellent decisions like, uh, Zach, uh, Terrell did last year. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see that as being something that, uh, the Broncos will lead the country in again, but you never know. Um, you know, turn turnovers are mostly random. So, uh, we'll see. It looks, I'm looking at the uh, stack comparison. I thought, okay, it looks like it's plus 22. So Western Michigan was plus 22 last year. Um, uh, they were actually plus 18. Okay. So uh, maybe that's wrong. I thought I read plus 18, but then this, this one had that USC was zero. I didn't even realize that. So they had a zero turnover margin. Okay. Yeah. And that, that seems like, you know, it's closer to the norm or closer to the average for college football. And, uh, I would expect, uh, Western to, you know, slip a little bit more toward that this year. Yeah, I think obviously with the you know rookie quarterback, um, there's going to be some options there. But any, we're, we're, we'll let you go. But just uh, anything on special teams. I actually think I read somewhere that both USC and Western Michigan only allowed like one punt return at all last year, so they were both pretty good at uh, not allowing that to happen. USC loses a Dory Jackson was kind of like their special teams guru guy that just made all kinds of plays. But anything coming back that uh, USC fans should watch for on special teams? Yeah, definitely. Um... I mentioned uh, the cornerback Darius Phillips. Um, part of what makes him so special is his ability to return uh, kicks and punts. Um, he uh, returned one uh, one kickoff and one punt for a touchdown last year, um, and uh, he's got I think he has uh, maybe three or four in his career. Uh, he's a senior this year, um, but yeah, he is someone that uh, Coach Lester has praised and is and has uh, singled out um, with his you know ability to uh, return kickoffs and punts as some skills that are going to get him uh, looks in the NFL. Um, so, he, you know, he's a guy with great speed, probably somewhere around 4'4", um, who is really, really dangerous. Um, we already talked about his ability to uh, take interceptions back to the house, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many teams actually punt to him this year. Uh, I'm sure USC has done their homework and knows that, uh, you know, you don't want to, <laughs> uh, you know, kick a, hu- uh, a super long punt that's going to, you know, go w- well past the coverage and let uh, Phillips just have open field in front of him when he catches it. Um, so I would expect them to maybe try to angle it away from him a little bit, um, kind of angle it toward the sideline. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but he is definitely someone that, uh, you know, when he gets a kickoff or gets a punt in his hands, he's looking to take it the other way for six. All right. Uh, just one last thing. The line on this game, the last I saw was, 27 points and I do a Pac-12 podcast and, uh, that just see where I, where I pick against the spread and, uh, that just seemed way too high for me. I mean, I think this is a still a talented team. 
maybe if they kind of if the Broncos go up tempo and it's a, it's going to be you know maybe things can get out of control a little bit. But I think USC is probably going to want to run the ball, and I think the Broncos are probably going to run the ball. So maybe shorten the game a little bit. To me, I think it's closer than that. Any thoughts on that and the the, the big line that's out there? Um, yeah, I I kind of see that uh, see it being a four score game. Okay. Um, just uh, given that uh, Western is bringing a new quarterback into a hostile atmosphere, new coaching staff, new schemes, new playbook, everything like that. Um, I just I, I feel like the talent that USC has on defense with uh, Sam Darnold, everyone knows knows about him. Um, I just feel like they're going to be able to move the ball. Uh, pretty, pretty effectively um, through the run, and then uh, you know with play action pass, um, I think that uh, they're going to put up some points. And I think that you know week one is going to give USC's coaches pretty good opportunity to uh, you know work on some of that chemistry between Darnold and the receivers, um, who I understand are pretty young. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I definitely see this um, being maybe a twenty-seven or twenty-eight point game. Okay. Um. If it's anything closer, you know, if it's uh, if it's a game in the third quarter, that'll be really exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, just given Western circumstances this year, um, I don't see it being any closer than maybe uh, three scores. Um, last year, you know, I think this would have been a great game. Um, I think this would have been a game that Western was definitely in until the fourth quarter, but a uh, little bit different circumstances this year, and. Um, yeah, but well, you know, we'll see. Uh, as they say, that's why they play the game. Yeah, and uh, definitely going to be looking forward to uh, you know seeing the first ever matchup between uh, you know a, a historic USC squad and uh, Western Mission coming off the historic season of their own. Yeah, neither team has played anyone from the other conference, so uh, that's kind of funny that that's happened. And I, you know, yeah. sometimes I do this, Patrick, where like you know I've got all the practices, you see everything, and you're like, ah, oh, they don't look that. Smooth on offense, the the young wide receivers. There's not all the chemistry there yet. You kind of get that in your head, and then you want you so you think they're not going to do as well as they do, and then they go out there and either like do way better or do way worse. So it's kind of hard to see. I could see this, you know, being some sort of blowout, but I could see it too where they play a little closer to the vest. You got Stanford coming up the next weekend. They you know content running the football. Western Michigan has success running football with all those backs and everything, and you kind of control the game. And, you know, it's a 21 point game or something at the end. So I, I could kind of see that, but, but, you know, it could be one, two, but that's why, like you said, that's why we watch. We have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Definitely an exciting uh, opener for both teams. Yeah. Well, I do, I really appreciate you taking out some time, uh, Patrick. So you can follow him on Twitter, Patrick underscore N O T H A F T. Uh, Patrick, so much, uh, thanks again so much for coming on and sharing some insights about the Western Michigan Broncos. Yeah. Ryan, it was great talking. All right. Thanks so much. Make sure you yep. give uh, Patrick a follow and check out what he's tweeting about the the Broncos. I uh, hope you guys enjoy this edition of the Peristyle Podcast, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices, every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. 
Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 